Hi, welcome to the podcast of The Kelly Cutrera Show for Wednesday, November the 18th. Dr. Suman Chakrabarty will talk to us about the big news on the vaccine front and when we can hope to get our hands on it. We'll also discuss how you can become part of something called a Toronto miracle. But first, man, this story about this uh, MP, Ritansi, just get, keeps getting better and better. Yasmin Ritansi, let me just refresh your memory. She um, was a liberal MP, just recently stepped down from caucus, is now sitting as an independent. Why? Because the CBC found out she was an employ- employing her sister, um, who she says is not really my sister. She's like my adopted sister. So I don't know if that counts. Oh, it counts. It counts. She was employing her to run her constituency office for years, which is against the rules. An interesting update to this story is that commissioner, the ethics commissioner, Mario Dion, his office heard about this in 2018 and turned it away, said, well, you know what? It's not under our jurisdiction. Duff Conacher joins the show. He is co-founder of Democracy Watch, a nonprofit group in Ottawa advocating for government accountability. Wow, this story keeps getting more interesting, Duff. It certainly does. And uh, Andrew Shear and Aaron, Aaron O'Toole situations this morning as well. Okay. Let's talk about um, let's talk about Ritansi first, and then I want to go over to Andrew Shear because I know what's going on with him. I haven't heard anything about O'Toole, so I can't be alone on that. Um, you're in the know. You watch government quite closely. What do you think of the ethics um, office turning this away? This story about Yasmin uh, employing her sister two years ago. It smells as bad as the situation itself. I mean, the complaint that they received said. MP, I'm complaining about an MP hiring her sister. And they decided it wasn't in their jurisdiction, even though they enforce ethics rules for MPs. And they only only receive about 40 complaints a year. So it's not like, oh, we, we had a flood of 700 complaints and we this one got lost in the shuffle. There's just 40 complaints a year. It's not very hard to do that work. And yeah, and what's, what's interesting about those 40 complaints, if I can just interject for a second, is that um, back in 2018, 2019, when they first heard about that replaint, uh, that complaint, the office closed 28 of those cases without proceeding to a- examination. They didn't even give them a look. And those are secret rulings. We don't know the details about any of those rulings. And it shouldn't be allowed. Sunlight is a good disinfectant, as the wise U.S. Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis said about 110 years ago. And the sunlight needs to be shone on the ethics commissioner, the lobbying commissioner, all the watchdogs. None of them should be allowed to make a secret ruling. If you receive a complaint, you should have to issue a public ruling on the complaint. And if they, if the ethics commissioner was required to do that, everyone would have known about the situation back in 2018. And MP Ritanzi would have been gone. She wouldn't have run in 2019 because not only is she violating the ethics rules, I think that she meets the standard of violating the breach of trust rules in the criminal code and that the RCMP should be investigating her now and should have been investigating her back in 2018 when the ethics commissioner would have referred it on to them if the system actually was set up to work. But it's full of loopholes and the ethics commissioner is a lapdog who covers things up with secret rulings and has all and you. You would like um, the them to start conducting routine audits on MP also, spending. It's a t- it's a total trust system. The, the MP discloses uh, what their financial assets are and investments are, and who they owe money to, 
And the ethics commissioner says, oh, okay, thank you. Thanks for telling me the entire truth. I mean, for us to believe that every MP is telling the entire truth in these situations, that's just totally naive. That's not how you enforce laws. Law enforcement 101 is you inspect people. That's why we have speed traps on the highways, because we don't trust everybody to follow all the rules. And, And we should not be trusting MPs and government officials to follow the rules, but the ethics commissioner does and always has. It's just part of how the whole system's a sad joke. You brought up Shear in O'Toole. So let's touch on Shear for a second. Uh, last night, uh, the news broke that Shear not only uh, hired his sister while he could, but then later when he was no longer able to uh, hire his sister because of the rules very clearly state, no siblings, he hired her, his sister-in-law. Um, I believe she's still working with him. Uh, what do you say to someone who thinks, yeah, well, who cares? It's the sister-in-law. What's the big deal? Well, she's not still working with him. Um, oh, she's not. She, okay. No, she uh, was fired last night. Again, the ethics, Andrew Shear says the ethics commissioner signed off on this in secret two years ago. Uh, hmm. It's just a joke. And uh, his sister-in-law uh, then hired his wife. So what does that smell like? Well, let's see. Uh, sister-in-law hired by Andrew Shear, who's an MP. Now she doesn't need to be paid as much by her business because she has this second income. So now she has the money to hire Andrew Shear's wife. Let's so, touch on O'Toole. What's, what's the situation with O'Toole? With, Andrew, with Aaron O'Toole, his wife works for another conservative MP. And that also should only be allowed with a real application of an exemption because you don't want a cabinet minister is not allowed to hire uh, the family members of other cabinet ministers. And the reason for that is you don't want the prime minister saying, Hey, I'll keep all my cabinet ministers loyal by hiring their kids or Mr. Saying, Hey, I'll, I'll make sure the prime minister will never fire me from cabinet, no matter what I do by hiring his kids. And it's the same with MPs. Uh, they shouldn't be doing favors for each other, uh, especially if someone, you know, someone's running for the leadership of the party. Okay, so I'll hire a bunch of kids of MPs in my offices, and that'll get them loyal to support me for running for the leadership. It shouldn't be allowed. And there's three definitions and three different sets of rules of, of what it, the, the definition of family is for these spending rules and ethics rules at, on Parliament Hill. It's just ridiculous. If it's wrong, it's wrong. One definition should apply, and it should be extended family. You just you can't use the public's money to benefit your family, and you can't use it to benefit your colleagues' families. I just want to uh, just go back on something here, because we don't have a lot of time with you, Duff. I wish I had more time. With this O'Toole story, you're saying his wife uh, works for another MP. Is it possible that, because uh, I'd like to flesh out these stories a little bit, that she they were not married at the time she was hired, or was this a hiring that happened after they were married? It was after, and it, it's not happening now, um, but it was happening. And it, it, it just it doesn't smack past the smell test. It should be illegal. It is when illegal, was she, the rule Duff, when, when was she no longer working for that MP? I just want to get everything all clear the, here out in the open. Yeah, all those details are just coming out now. Uh, it's the newest situation. And uh, the rule is you can't improperly further another person's interests. So you can't further your family's interests at all or your own interests or improperly further another person's interests. And it's just improper to be hiring the relative of another MP. I mean, it's the public's money. We allow 
ministers and we allow MPs to hire staff, even though those staff are really usually getting a favor back from helping the MP or minister win election. That's the one exemption we allow because we say MPs, ministers, they want to have loyal people in their right. in their staff. That's fine. But not family members. Let's draw the line there. No family members, no matter what relative they are. You could apply for an exemption if it was like your third cousin twice removed and they were really an expert in, in what you need. And the exemption would be a public ruling by the ethics commissioner that could be challenged in court if someone thought it was wrong. But otherwise, no family. It's just a simple rule. It should have been there decades ago. It's still not there. It shows just how much it's a sad joke, and no, no MPs really care about this. They just like playing gotcha when one of them gets caught, but no one wants to clean up the system. The big news, of course, is that uh, Pfizer is now saying that their vaccine is 95% effective with no safety concerns. So with that, I want to welcome to the show Dr. Suman Chakrabarty, infectious disease specialist. Welcome to the show. Good to have you on, Suman. Always a pleasure. Okay, so uh, this is great news for Pfizer because they're saying that the final analysis of phase three trials of Pfizer's corona vaccine shows that uh, it was 95% effective in preventing infections, even in older adults, which was a big question mark, and there were no serious safety concerns. I can't help but see the uh, the the two Moderna and Pfizer uh, vaccines put together, and I think it's kind of interesting that Moderna came in at 94.5% effective, and Pfizer were like, oh, we just got an update. We're, we're 95. Did we say 90? We're 95 and but it's Russia's great news. Come out and say ninety five point one later today, <laughs> but uh, yeah, right. uh, you know. So first of all, I, obviously for me, it's cautious optimism. I don't want to be a wet blanket, but of course, again, yeah. this is new, this is science by press release, and you know, it, it is a little bit uh, interesting that uh, it was initially ninety, and all of a sudden it's better than expected. There, I suspect, is some uh, methodical uh, nature to why they're doing this. But that said, if you look at things, it does look like it's good data. Uh, I do want to see the data myself. It does look like a light at the end of the tunnel. And look, it looks like they already have a plan uh, for the infrastructure for the cold chain. So that's uh, is promising. Uh, and they look like they're, they're applying for um, emergency use authorization later this month. So some mm. good news definitely to look forward to. Right. And that's where they go to the FDA and they say, can you take a look at this and give us the clearance to start administering, administering this drug en masse? That's exactly right. And I think it's really important that FDA approval, because that's where the, the, the data will be vetted by a third party. And I think that's really important. As much as we all want this vaccine, whatever happens has to be safe. And they also have to ensure that after it's marketed and after it's being used on, you know, hundreds of thousands of millions of people, actually, uh, it should be looked at closely for any kind of unseen side effects uh, that can sometimes happen post-marketing. Okay, when you say, you know, the visual that I get when you say the data has to be, uh, you know, um, authenticated or, you know, uh, passed by a third party, I'm picturing somebody sitting down with a volume of information going through it. It's not really that. It would be a team of people pouring over it because the speed is of the essence here, right? Absolutely. And uh, what, what they do is they look at all the data, they look at the methodology, they look at, uh, you know, they look at it with a fine tooth comb because a lot of the time with, with the drug trials, obviously, it's not that they're necessarily trying to cheat you, but there's certain things that are uh, maybe misrepresented or certain uh, details that are left out. All these things are looked at very, very closely. The data does look really good, I'm going to admit it, but it's always important for us to go through the right process before something comes out.
Okay. And um, we have to mention that what looks great about this is an independent group has been keeping an eye on the results and side effects. And to date, they say no serious safety concerns. So that is fantastic news. Let's move on to uh, what were you, you were talking about with the um, temperature of that vaccine, because we're talking about Pfizer's has to be stored at a lower temperature. You said that they'd worked out some challenges. Uh, is this just with tr- transferring the vaccine and making sure it's cold enough? Exactly right. So this vaccine, the Pfizer one, specifically requires a minimum of minus 70 degrees Celsius storage. And that's difficult because this is not your typical um, vaccine fridge or drug fridge. It has to be, uh, you know, special types of uh, materials, special types of tools. And it looks like this is something that was already um, anticipated. They have been working on this. I know in Canada, uh, federally, we do have a plan using some private companies to help to bring this out. I'm not sure how this all works, but the point is an infrastructure has to be available so this is stored properly and it can be administered properly. Right. Now, I was reading that both Moderna and Pfizer's vaccine, they're using new and relatively untested vaccine technology. Uh, You know, with that in mind, I think we better clarify exactly what's new about this technology. How does it differ from, you know, the regular vaccines we've been taking, let's say, for the flu? It's kind of cool, actually, because what this is, is that this is the genetic code. It's called RNA, which is related to DNA, but it's not the same thing. Um, They're uh, delivered with nanoparticles. These little instruction manuals tell your cells to make a protein. This protein that comes out is actually, it looks like a spike protein that's on the surface of the COVID virus. So now when your, your immune system sees this, it then makes an immune response, so you're primed. So now if you are actually um, uh, exposed to the virus, you either have no illness or you have a mild illness. That's how vaccination works in general. But the big thing is that with this genetic material, you're skipping a lot of those steps that can cause uh, different side effects. And it's a really interesting technology. And I'm hopefully, I mean, look, it looks like it's really effective. And I suspect we're going to be seeing more vaccines like this in the future. Like what kind of uh, steps are you skipping? Not to get too into this, but if you can make it as, uh, you know, easy to digest as you can for people like me, that would be great. Yeah, so, so uh, other vaccines that, uh, for example, you have a, let's say, a hepatitis A vaccine. It's the virus itself that's now been inactivated. It's made so it's not uh, going to infect you. So now you have this big particle that you're injecting into the, uh, the bloodstream. It works very well, but the immune system has to pick that up. It has to break it apart. It has to see all the, the uh, subsequent proteins and make uh-huh. an immune response. You don't get the right because it's only that. responding to a certain point of a part of it, uh, the coronavirus. So it's less work for the immune system to do. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. All right. Well, you made that easy. I appreciate <laughs> that. Um, one of the big concerns, and this is uh, interesting. Uh, I was reading today that um, you know there are unprecedented logistical challenges producing and distributing a vaccine because we have to go worldwide with this. We still have to get final regulatory approval for both vaccines. The global population, around 7 billion people, we don't expect both vaccines will be taking care of those 7 billion people because there are more vaccines. I think there were 15 in stage three clinical trials that looked very hopeful. Not all of them are the mRNA uh, vaccines like these two. Uh, Some are your typical vaccine. Uh, But they were talking about um, the challenges with specifically Moderna. They say that they aim to produce about 400 million doses of the vaccine annually and uh, that's the Swiss drug maker that has the rights to that. And the U.S. firm is aiming at 500 million to 1 billion doses in total for 2021. The big, big challenge, they say, comes um, in scaling up production. 
because, and this is something that I don't think a lot of us think about, you know, the issue is speed, right? You have to make sure you get your um, manufacturing lines um, to the level that you need them at. So you're going to have to build the infrastructure there and you need 60 to 70 educated people to run those lines. And so you have to train all those people. Every time you um, add a new line for the manufacturing of these vaccines, you have to train more people. And obviously, that's going to take some time. We didn't think about that. You need your uh, access to the equipment. And it's it's hard to get, you talk to anybody who's a contractor trying to acquire parts right now is a bit of a challenge. And then, of course, you've got your storage temperature, which it looks like they're working through. But there are a lot of hurdles to uh, jump over. I completely agree. It's obvious there's a lot of details uh, uh, behind the scenes. And, and that's part of the reason why that it's going to take a long time to get the entire uh, population of the world, let alone a, a country, actually, let alone the world. But one thing I will say is that you don't necessarily have to get everybody at once for the vaccine to work. If you're starting to kind of target the highest risk people of getting severe disease, but also the highest risk people of passing it, you're taking a big chunk of that problem away and that that's going to have a significant effect as well, especially seeing how uh, efficacious this vaccine is. I was reading that Canada's deputy chief of public uh, health officer has said, we're going to have to continue to follow public health guidelines ourselves uh, because it's going to take, even when these two vaccines get approved, looks like, uh, you know, if we're hopeful here, by the end of next year is when we could see uh, the majority of Canadians being vaccinated. The end of next year. Yeah. Think about that. <laughs> For, for me, actually, that's short because I think that initially we were, uh, we were thinking we were talking more like three, four years. So uh, Really? Me, yeah, absolutely. Uh, because it's just because we didn't realize, we didn't know when the vaccine would come out. We also, it's very important to know, we didn't know how effective it would be. And we still don't. We have to get the final data on that. But the thing is, is that when a vaccine is this effective, it can work in really curbing transmission quickly. But other vaccines, they might not be as effective and they work more slowly. But that doesn't mean that it's going to be like it was in March. I think that what's going to happen is that in 2021, things will incrementally get better and better and better. You know, yes, we're still going to have to do our physical distancing, but it'll be to a point that's not as bad as now. We'll have much less cases per day. It's going to change. And I think that it's, just, it's a gradual thing. And I think that certainly uh, by the end of 2021, the world will look like a, a a better place in a different, sorry, a different place in a better way. Toronto Miracle is a grassroots initiative and it's run completely on volunteer power. It is setting lofty goals for Torontonians on Saturday, December 5th. Here to talk about it, Jordan Melenic, spokesperson for Toronto Miracle. Jordan, welcome to the show. Hi there. Thanks for having us. So excited to be here. Well, it's good to have you on. So what exactly are you asking Torontonians to do Saturday, December the 5th? We are asking folks to go to our website at torontomiracle.org to pre-register their intention to donate a non-perishable food item or more. We will gladly accept more. Um, and on December 5th at 10 a.m., one of our amazing volunteers will come by to pick up your food item and donate it to a social service agency in need. Okay, so you are hoping to bring together all 140 Toronto neighborhoods to raise how much in non-perishable food items? Our goal is to collect uh, 250,000 pieces of non-perishable food items. How'd you come up with that number? 
It, it was a, a little bit of a shot in the dark looking at the, because um, we're looking to get all 140 neighbourhoods participating, knowing an average of 4,000 people live in each neighbourhood. We just kind of did some math uh, to get to the 250,000. But we also know that because this event is mirrored off of other events that have happened uh, throughout Canada during the pandemic, we know that the impact here um, you know, could be great, uh, assuming we can get Torontonians to rally around this. So our friends in Windsor right. did a similar event, and they raised two million pounds of food. Then we can beat that. Um, and know. so you're just basing it on if if each household put out one can. And, you know, who's going to do that? If you're going to register to donate to uh, the food banks in your neighborhood to help out several charities, you're going to put together a nice amount of food. And I know that Torontonians uh, really pull together when these initiatives happen. What is amazing about this is it's all volunteer run. And it's it's started by community members. How did you get involved? Um, I was asked to join. I spent 10 years working at Second Harvest, so I have, you know, a history of working in the food insecurity landscape here in Toronto. And uh, my friend Jody, who was the one who brought it here to Toronto, knew friends who did it in Windsor and Chatham and just knew of my expertise in the space and asked if I could help out. And I just thought, you know, this is such a great time to be doing something. I think everybody is feeling the pain of the pandemic. So many people want to help, but they don't know how. And this is such an easy, low barrier way to do it. Right. And your your Toronto Miracle volunteers will be going out Saturday, December 5th, looking for your door drop. Basically, you'll have a bag outside your door, says Toronto Miracle on it very clearly so they can find you. Is that the reason why you want also people to head to the website so you don't have people just roaming neighborhoods going, did anybody leave me anything? <laughs> yeah. So when you pre-register, what you're doing is you're going to give us your postal code and that will really help us zero in on where we're placing volunteers. In addition to needing people to step up to donate food, we also need volunteers. And so that's a great, this is a great family experience, a great um, way for high school students to get some volunteer hours and any corporate groups that are looking to give back over the holidays. We'd be happy to talk to you and learn how we can engage your company. Okay, so where do they find you? They can go to our contact us form um, on torontomiracle.org. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time, Jordan. It's a great thing you're doing Saturday, December the 5th, torontomiracle.org. Is that right? You got it. Thanks so much for the opportunity to get the word out. Really appreciate it. All right. Thanks so much for doing what you can to help out others in Toronto. Um, It is really Toronto the good, right? Like we lean on that a lot. But this is another one of those uh, stories that I like to highlight every now and then because we focus on some heavy stuff. This is a great way to get involved and get your kids involved. Thanks for tuning into the program. Good to have you with us. Don't forget to hit subscribe. It'll make your life easier. And we love to have regular listeners to the podcast. Please tell your friends, pass it on. And if you get a chance to tune in, While we broadcast live, we're on 9 to noon on 640 Toronto. Enjoy your day. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.